0: Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast, your daily dose of true crime. On today's episode, the story of the Genesee River killer. But first, your true crime headlines. A convicted murderer was arraigned this week on new murder charges after allegedly killing his cellmate last month at California's Corcoran State Prison. Jamie Osuna is already serving a life sentence for the 2011 torture and murder of a Bakersfield woman and will now face felony charges including torture, mayhem, and murder for the death of cellmate Luis Romero. His autopsy detailed the gruesome injuries he received at the hands of his cellmate, who was armed with a weapon he had fashioned out of a razor and some string. Osuna used this weapon to decapitate Romero, gouge out his eyes, and slice out his left lung. A Kings County prosecutor called it the most gruesome murder he's ever handled. Osuna faces the death penalty if convicted. The state of Texas has executed 44-year-old John William King last week for his role in the dragging death of James Byrd Jr. more than 20 years ago. King was an avowed racist who had ties to a white supremacist prison gang and had spoken of a desire to start a race war. King and two other men, Sean Berry and Lawrence Brewer, offered a ride to Mr. Byrd on that fateful night in June of 1998. He accepted, and witnesses recalled seeing him riding in the bed of a gray pickup truck around 2.30 or 2.45 in the morning. The men are believed to have driven Bird to a clearing in the woods outside of town, where they beat him, sprayed his face with spray paint, and used a logging chain to bind his ankles before tying him to the back of the truck. He was dragged for almost three miles before his decapitated body was dumped in the town's segregated black cemetery. Mr. Bird's remains were found at more than 80 places along the route. The gruesome crime led to tougher hate crime laws in Texas, including one which bears Mr. Bird's name. King and Brewer were both sentenced to death. The third man, Sean Berry, received a sentence of life in prison without parole. Brewer's execution was carried out in 2011. When offered a last meal of his choice, Brewer requested a massive spread including two chicken fried steaks, a triple bacon cheeseburger, a pound of barbecue, a pint of ice cream, a slab of fudge, loaded chicken fajitas, fried okra, and three root beers. When it was served to him before his execution, he told jailers that he wasn't hungry and left the meal completely untouched before being taken to the death chamber. Outraged, lawmakers demanded an end to the practice of offering last meals, and Brewers was the last one ever served. A year after the arrest of accused Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo, one of the people who helped break the case is being honored for her groundbreaking work. Barbara Ray Venter, a genealogist who helped lead investigators to D'Angelo, has been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. The technique she used to help solve the decades-old cold case uses DNA collected from crime scenes to build a genetic profile of a suspect, which is then compared with information on public ancestry databases to identify family members of the suspect and narrow down the search. In the years since D'Angelo's arrest, investigators have used the technique to identify suspects in more than 50 cold cases nationwide. D'Angelo's crimes, which spanned five California counties and more than four decades, include the 13 murders and 13 rape-related charges he's facing, as well as dozens, which exceed the statute of limitations. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty against the 73-year-old, whose trial could take up to 10 years to complete. 20-year-old Thomas DeWald is being held in a Pennsylvania jail after confessing to kidnapping a four-year-old girl and the attempted kidnapping of other children near his grandparents' home outside the small town of Waynesboro, where he had been staying for the past four or five weeks. DeWald admitted to investigators that he drove around the neighborhood looking for children playing unattended outside of their homes and chose two houses where he had seen children that he believed to be living in deplorable conditions. In the first house, which he entered through an unlocked front door, he found the four-year-old girl who he took from her bed. He took her to his home and kept her inside a wooden trunk in his room, from which she was able to escape the next day. A few days later, he broke into the other home and observed three children sleeping in their beds, but decided not to kidnap any of them because he deemed their house to be in acceptable condition. He was arrested Monday by investigators canvassing the neighborhood where the abducted girl had been found. He faces 13 felony counts. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. Plus free shipping. Just go to Harry's.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's Harry's.com, code 8989. Enjoy! This is Murder Minute, your daily dose of true crime. On today's episode, a murder spree in Rochester, New York, by convicted serial killer Arthur Shawcross. Arthur was never very good at school but he found his talent in the most heinous of ways. Stay tuned for the haunting story of the Genesee River Killer. Arthur Shawcross was born on June 6, 1945 in Kittery, Maine, but wasn't there long, as his parents Arthur Roy and Elizabeth Shawcross moved the family to Waterton, a small town near Lake Ontario in New York State, when he was still a young child. Shawcross exhibited behavioral problems from an early age, including frequent bedwetting and bullying. From school records, it can be independently verified that he was chronically truant, had tested at a particularly low IQ, was prone to violence, and was suspected of committing a series of juvenile arson attacks and burglaries. Shawcross made unusual claims about his early sexuality, claiming that he was sexually abused by his mother and his aunt, and that he had sexual relations with his younger sister. He also claimed to have had his first homosexual encounter at the age of 11, and even to have experimented with bestiality. His family disputes these accusations, maintaining that Shawcross had a normal childhood, and that he has a history of fabricating stories. There is no way of knowing the reality of his childhood, but Shawcross would prove an unreliable biographer frequently changing his stories as he was interviewed by investigators and professionals over the years. After failing to pass the ninth grade, Shawcross dropped out of school, filling the next few years of his youth with violence and short jail sentences, receiving his first probationary sentence in December of 1963 for smashing a shop window. Arthur Shawcross married his first wife, Sarah, the following year in September of 1964. The couple then produced a son in October of 1965, but another probationary charge for unlawful entry the following month tore the marriage apart, and they divorced soon after. Shawcross gave up parental rights to the boy and never saw him again. In 1967, Shawcross was drafted and served a tour of duty in Vietnam of which he told elaborate stories about the atrocities he committed and that he had a combat kill count of 39 when, in fact, he never saw combat. He later boasted that he murdered and cannibalized two young Vietnamese women and several children. When investigated, no evidence was found to support any of his wild and disturbing claims. Discounted as fabrications, authorities say Shawcross killed no one during his tour of duty. On his return from military service in 1968, he was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. There, he married a woman named Linda, who noticed his violent and disturbing behavior, which included burning things. The Army psychiatrist told Linda that her husband derived sexual enjoyment from starting fires. After he was discharged from the Army, Shawcross picked up and moved with his wife back to New York, and divorce shortly followed as Shawcross began a crime spree of arson and burglary, landing himself five years at Attica and Auburn Correctional Facilities, where he was awarded release after serving less than two years of his sentence. This early release was granted after he rescued a security guard during a prison riot. In October of 1971, Arthur Shawcross was free and returned to Waterton again where he secured a job with the Public Works Department and got engaged for yet a third time. A year later, on April 7, 1972, Shawcross took 10-year-old neighbor Jack Blake fishing and claimed his first victim. Just a few weeks later, on April 22, 1972, he married his third wife, Penny, who was pregnant with his child. Jack's body was found five months later, showing signs of rape and having been beaten and suffocated. But with no other evidence, no arrests were made. In September of 1972, the body of eight-year-old Karen Ann Hill was found under a bridge. She too had been raped and murdered. Police found mud, leaves, and other debris had been forced down her throat. Neighbors soon remembered that Shawcross had been seen with Karen near the bridge before her disappearance. And because he had a history of minor run-ins with local children, known for spanking and harassing the neighborhood kids, Shawcross finally came under suspicion and was arrested on October 3, 1972. He waited two full weeks before confessing to the murders. Though Shawcross finally confessed to both killings, he reached a deal with police. He would plead guilty to killing Karen Ann Hill, and in turn, no charges would be filed for Blake's murder given the lack of evidence tying him to Jack Blake's death. In addition, the charge for the murder of Karen Ann Hill was also reduced from murder to first-degree manslaughter due to extreme emotional disturbance. Shawcross was sentenced to 25 years in prison, and his third wife, Penny, divorced him shortly thereafter. But Shawcross got lucky once again and was approved for parole after serving only 15 years in prison. Prison staff claimed that he was no longer dangerous, but psychiatrists warned that Shawcross was a schizoid psychopath. Shawcross was released in April of 1987 to Binghamton, New York, where many concerned citizens protested his arrival. And for several months, town after town, Shawcross was met with public outcry wherever he went. In June, Shawcross's parole officer finally moved him and his new girlfriend Rose Marie Wally to Rochester, New York. Conveniently, this time the parole officer failed to notify the Rochester authorities of the move. Soon after his arrival, Shawcross married his fourth wife. In Rochester, Shawcross took on a succession of menial jobs and bored with his marriage to Rose. He was soon seeking excitement elsewhere, from prostitutes and his new girlfriend, Clara Neal. In March of 1988, less than a year after getting out of prison, Shawcross began the killing spree that would make him one of the most infamous serial killers in American history. Hunters discovered 27-year-old prostitute Dorothy Blackburn on March 24, 1988. Her body was found dumped in the Genesee River with signs of strangulation and bite marks in the groin area. The discovery of the body of another prostitute, Anne-Marie Steffen, 28, on September 9, 1989, suggested a link between the victims. She, too, died of asphyxia, and her body had been dumped in a similar manner to Blackburn's. Her body, however, was found far from the original murder scene, so police discounted the possibility that a serial killer was at work. Soon, a pattern developed. Shawcross paying women for sex, strangling them, and disposing of their ever more mutilated bodies in or near the Genesee River. Next, the body of homeless woman Dorothy Keeler, aged 59, was discovered followed six days later by another prostitute, Patricia Eves, 25, in the same area. Both had been asphyxiated like the others, and the press began to show an interest as the cases appeared to be linked. They dubbed the murderer the Genesee River Killer, Shawcross then choked Frances Brown, 22, to death, sexually assaulting her dead body before disposing of it. Police began warning prostitutes in the area, interviewing them, hoping to gather as much information as possible about John's operating in the area. With the help of local prostitutes, police were able to piece together a description of a regular client who called himself Mitch or Mike, who the women said, was prone to violence. Police also began checking criminal records for offenders who might be living in the area. Of course, Shawcross's sealed criminal record meant that police were unaware that the convicted murderer was living there. Then, the body of 26-year-old June Stott, who was neither a prostitute nor a drug user, was found on Thanksgiving Day. She had been strangled, anally mutilated after death, had her labia removed, and was gutted from throat to crotch like a wild animal. Shawcross later claimed to have eaten some of her organs. His killings became more frequent. Maria Welch, Kimberly Logan. With the body count mounting, police sought assistance from FBI profilers. They divided the prostitute murders into subgroups according to method and location. They developed a profile that described the killer as a white male in his 20s or 30s, strong, possibly with a military background, probably with a previous criminal record, familiar with the area, and comfortable enough with the victims that they would enter his vehicle without hesitation. In November, sex worker Elizabeth Gibson got into Shawcross's car in an attempt to keep warm during the cold Rochester winter. Shawcross later claimed that the reason he strangled her was in self-defense because she was trying to steal his wallet, the excuse he gave for murdering many of these women. This time he disposed of her body in nearby Wayne County, as by now Shawcross was worried that the police were getting too close to catching him and was attempting to throw them off his trail. The discovery of the body of Elizabeth on November 27th brought a breakthrough, suspect Mitch Who the sex workers had previously suspected had been seen with Elizabeth shortly before her disappearance, but this brought them no closer to establishing his identity. In December, Shawcross choked Darlene Tripp to death and left her body in a wooded area. No more than a few days later, he returned to Rochester for victim June Cicero. When a pair of jeans were discovered near the river on December 31, 1989, containing an ID card for a missing girl named Felicia Stevens, police began an aerial search of the area. On January 2nd, 1990, a helicopter spotted what appeared to be a naked female body lying on the ice surface of the river by a bridge in the forest. The body was not Felicia Stevens, however, but that of missing prostitute June Cicero, whose body was mutilated and sawn almost in half. Then, the helicopter spotted a man standing on the bridge next to a van who appeared to be masturbating or urinating. Shawcross had returned to the scene of one of his crimes to relive the pleasure of the murder. Shawcross drove away, but was tracked down via the van's registration, which was in the name of his girlfriend, Clara Neal. When approached, they asked for his driver's license. Shawcross quickly admitted that he didn't have one, and then revealed that he had been in jail for manslaughter. Police took him into custody, where Shawcross revealed the earlier child deaths under questioning and a grandiose account of his Vietnam War service. A photo of him during questioning soon helped to confirm his identity as Mitch, the John the sex workers had suspected, and official inquiries unearthed the reason for Shawcross's sealed record which prevented investigators from finding him sooner. Still, police were unable to get Shawcross to confess until they confronted him with a piece of jewelry that he had given to his girlfriend, Clara Neal, that he had taken from the body of June Cicero. When police threatened to charge his girlfriend in the killings, Shawcross confessed, giving detailed excuses about why he had been forced to kill each one he even admitted to the killings of prostitutes Maria Welsh and Darlene Trippy, whose bodies had not yet been discovered. The account of his confession was nearly 80 pages long. Police noted that Shawcross, interestingly, discussed his crimes like he was reciting a recipe, showing no emotion or expression when talking about his crimes. In November of 1990, Shawcross was tried for the 10 murders that had occurred in Monroe County. The 11th victim, Elizabeth Gibson, had been killed in neighboring Wayne County. The trial was a national media event. Shawcross's defense team tried to build a case based on an insanity plea, citing accounts of his upbringing, post-traumatic stress as the result of military service, even a supposed cyst on his brain. Psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis testified that she believed he had brain damage, multiple personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The prosecution, an FBI profiler, and the Army were quick to dispute the claims about his childhood and his military service, casting doubts on Shawcross's insanity claims. The jury took only 30 minutes to deliberate before Shawcross was declared sane and guilty of 10 counts of second-degree murder. The judge sentenced him to 25 years for each count, a total of 250 years. A few months later, Shawcross was taken to Wayne County to be tried for Elizabeth Gibson's murder. He pleaded guilty and received a further life sentence. Shawcross was held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York State, serving 18 years until November 10, 2008, when he complained of pain in his leg. He was taken to a hospital where he died of cardiac arrest at age 63. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at murderminute.